Let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your graciousness to us. Uh, We thank you that we can come together uh, as a body to worship you, to study your word. And uh, Lord, we just uh, praise you for your sovereign control of, of all of history. We know that you orchestrate the the rise and the fall of every nation, that you are uh, the one who appoints all rulers, Um, and Lord, even though um, to us it seems like things can be um, just uh, chaos and uh, disturbance and uh, all sorts of unrest, Lord, we know that you are uh, ruling it all, governing it all. Uh, for your own purposes. Uh, Lord, we uh, plan to look at that in uh, the first century, um, but Lord, we know that just throughout all history, you are um, the one who um, who governs it all. Uh, God, you are planning out all of history uh, so that your name would be glorified and so that uh, ultimately good would come to your chosen people. And, um, God, we just uh, pray that we would just rest in your sovereignty and uh, just try to understand the things that uh, you are doing in history. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we're continuing our study on the life of Christ. This morning we're going to talk about the historical setting. So it will be... Another somewhat introductory uh, lesson. Um, So um, I do want to throw out a disclaimer, especially because I know this is going to go on the Internet. Um, I'm not a historian. I have not read everything there is to read on this stuff. So it's like, you know, I was looking at secondary sources. And as far as I know, the information I'm giving you is correct. But, you know... (laughs) Home, nobody comes along and says, oh, this guy just doesn't know what he's talking about. It's like, well, it's, I mean, to a certain degree, that's true. But um, hopefully this will be accurate enough to um, uh, to give you a kind of a layout of what's going on um, as, we, as we begin our study of the life of Christ and just taking a look at the, the historical setting, the, the, uh, the political things that are going on, the different... Uh, groups uh, that are involved in uh, the life of Christ. So, um, as we as we look at uh, the Gospels, um, two of the Gospels have you know very early statements uh, that respect a, a, a particular individual. Uh, Matthew chapter two, uh, verse one says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King of Herod the king, behold, wise men, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And then also in the Gospel of Luke, you have in the days of Herod, king of Judea. So uh, opening up the story of the Gospel, you immediately have um, an introduction of this person, King Herod. Um and one thing that can definitely be very confusing is that there, uh, there's more than one Herod that's mentioned in the Bible. So we're gonna we're gonna try to lay some of that information out. Um, but it's also, um, I I think like 
I mean, I'm going largely on my own experience here, but um, a lot of us, I think, as we as we kind of like map out the history of Israel um, and you know who was in charge when and all that. Uh, you know, a lot of us have just a very clear, solid idea of like, oh, there was a time when it was, you know, King David, he was king of Israel. Um, you know, and then as we go forward through history, I think a lot of times our notion of like what's going on can be kind of fuzzy. And then we like, we, we come across the New Testament there and it's like, okay, well, we got King Herod, we've got the Romans, you know, what's going on? How did we get here? Um, and, you know, a, a lot of you may have a very clear understanding of, of uh, all that went on there, uh, but I know a lot of people have a, have a fuzzier understanding. So this may just be review for some of you, um, and for some of you it may be information you're unaware of. I know for me it was partially it was review and partially it was filling in some details that uh, I wasn't aware of before. But... Uh, I think everybody is going to be aware. We have King David, and then after he died, his son Solomon became king. Um, and then after that, the, the kingdom was divided uh, into Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Um, and then those two kingdoms continued. Um, eventually, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, and eventually Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. Uh, so... That was in 587 that the Babylonians conquered Judea, um, but then they were defeated. They were defeated by the Persians um, under Cyrus, and then many of the Jews uh, returned to Judea. And so you see, um, you see that information, you know, in the Old Testament. You especially looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, you see um, a lot of that information presented. Um, then that's kind of where the Old Testament leaves off, is during this period when the Persians are ruling. Um, there's there's prophecies about things that come later, but uh, we kind of have to go to sources outside of the Bible to piece together the, the things that happened after that. Um, but um, the Persians were later defeated by Alexander the Great, uh, and so he was basically uh, a, a Greek ruler. Um, and so from 332 BC, uh, Judea was ruled by Alexander and his successors. Um, and then in 167 BC, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus, I think, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, began using the temple in Jerusalem uh, for the worship of a Greek god. Um, and that's when you had Judas Maccabeus, uh, and he led a rebellion in 142 BC, uh, or sorry, he, he led a rebellion, and, and it, I mean, it took a while, and then in 142 BC, Judea became politically independent for the first time since the Babylonians uh, had uh, had conquered Judea, and so once again, you have, you know, Israel as its, as its own nation. Um, it was fairly short-lived. Um, Simon, uh, the brother of Judas Maccabeus, he became the first ruler of the Hasmonean dynasty. So that's that's what the Judas Maccabeus began. Um, it lasted until 63 BC. And so you can see here we're getting really close to the time of Christ, 63 BC. Um, but there was internal strife 
between the you know the different rulers in the Hasmonean um, dynasty, and uh, it in the end led to occupation by the Roman Empire. At this point, the the Roman Empire was growing stronger and stronger and conquering more and more territory, and um, basically. The instabilities within Israel at this point led to the Romans coming in and uh, and basically just taking over. Um, now this led to a, a period of extended turmoil um, within Judea, and there were also a lot of shifts in power within the Roman Empire. Uh, this is the period of time when famously Julius Caesar was assassinated, um, and just all sorts of things were happening as there were various power struggles in the region. Um, but eventually, um, the Romans appointed Herod to be king of the Jews in 37 BC. Uh, Herod was a, uh, an Idumean. Um, if, you, if you look on the map, um, let's see. And I think, is there still a map back there for... So you can see Idumea down there in the south. Um, that's uh, it was it was basically a part of Judah, um, but it was it was in that region. So Herod was he was from the region, and he had shown himself to be um, very helpful to the the Roman Empire and um, very politic and uh, able to accomplish a great many things, and so. Uh, he was put in charge and was made king of Judea rather than the Romans uh, ruling it uh, directly through a governor or something like that. Uh, now, as as we know from the the, uh, the accounts in the gospel, eventually there was, once again, a Roman governor uh, running Judea. Uh, but for the time being, they had simply appointed Herod to be the king of the Jews. Um, and, of course... The opening of the Gospels, we see Herod and his feeling the threat of uh, this new king of the Jews being born and the killing of, of all the children uh, in the area of Bethlehem. Um, Well-known story, you know, we, we usually hear that every Christmas. Um, but Eventually, Herod died shortly after the birth of Christ, um, and his kingdom was divided into three tetrarchies, uh, and these were ruled by his sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Now, all three of these are mentioned um, as we look at the Gospels, um, some of them more prominently than others. Um, for example, we have in Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 19 through 22, it says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, uh, saying, Rise, uh, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So this in particular is the part where I wanted uh, you guys to have a map so that you could kind of see what's what's going on here. Um, 
there's the the three sections. These are the the tetrarchies uh, that Herod's kingdom was divided up into, and so you can see shaded in the red there is the section that Archelaus um, was made king of, um, and then uh, up in the northeast on the far side of the Jordan, you have the the region of I'm not sure how to pronounce it Galantis, Galanitis, something like that. Um, and that's where Herod Philip uh, was made king, uh, Philip the uh, the Tetrarch. And then you have the green section there, which is uh, Galilee on the northwest, and then Perea on the other side of the Jordan to the southeast. Um, that's the section that Herod Antipas was, uh, was made king of. Now, most of the time when we see Herod mentioned in the New Testament after... Uh, the Herod that you know that attempted to kill Jesus when he was a baby, it's going to be Herod Antipas. It's going to be this one who ruled in Galilee and Perea. Um, so, like if we think of the of the trial uh, when Jesus was brought before Herod, uh, we think of John the Baptist uh, being beheaded by Herod. This is the Herod that we're talking about. Is Herod Antipas? Now Archelaus was ruling in Judea, um, and he was apparently a, a very oppressive ruler. Um, he only ruled for about nine years uh, before his subjects petitioned Emperor Augustus to remove him and replace him with a Roman official. Um, so in 6 AD, um, he was, if I remember right, uh, exiled to Gaul, uh, modern-day France, and uh, and they they placed a um, they placed a Roman prefect in his place. So the the region of Galilee from that point on was ruled directly by a Roman governor. Um, then let's see, Luke chapter three, verse one, um, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Uh, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis uh, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah Zechariah in the wilderness so there Luke is introducing um, this this period of time with uh, with John the Baptist, um, with a just a, a whole list of people who were in power, uh, basically to to establish you know a time frame of when this was happening. Um, and we you know we see who was the emperor at the time. It was Tiberius Caesar. We see Pontius Pilate at this point. Uh, we're going to talk about him a bit more in a second, but um, he was the uh, the prefect the governor of Judea, um, and mentions Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. Uh, again, that's the that's the Herod Antipas. Um, and then Philip, um, so that was the Philip the Tetrarch. Um, now, interestingly enough, that's not the only Philip, son of Herod, uh, that's mentioned in the Bible. Um, in uh, in Matthew uh, 14, uh, 1 through 4, 
um, we see uh, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, "This is John the Baptist. Uh, he had been uh, he has been raised from the dead. That is why this miraculous power is at work in him." For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And so there we see, um, again, this is this is Herod uh, Antipas, um, had put John to death because he had taken Herod- uh, Herodotus, uh, the, uh, his, his brother Philip's wife. Now this is not Philip the Tetrarch, this is actually another Philip. So that was something that I was just completely unaware of. I just assumed there was there was just one Philip. But um, so anyway, it can be very confusing. Um, but that's really the only mention of this particular Philip. So any any other mention of Philip, I believe, if I remember correctly, is going to be Philip the Tetrarch. Um, but Herod Antipas is going to be again the primary Herod uh, that we see. Um, now, until uh, until AD 22, Antipas ruled Galilee from uh, Sephorus, uh, just four miles from Nazareth. And so you can imagine, as Jesus is growing up, um, he would have just just been four miles away from the you know the capital. And so, um, a lot of times, I think we think of of, of Nazareth being kind of a of a backwater place, and, and in a sense it was, but it was very near uh, the the place that Herod was ruling from. So they would have definitely been uh, very much aware of all the political situations that were going on. Um, and the, the region of Galilee was, was known for having uh, a bit of a rebellious nature, and so uh, Herod was uh, definitely somebody who was very much on the watch for um, people who were rising up to challenge his power. Um, and of course, he was also aware that uh, his brother had lost his power. The, the Romans had taken it away and just put a Roman governor in his place. And so he definitely had to make sure he was doing a good job so that the, the Romans didn't do the same thing for him. Um, but again, the, as far as the Herods go, um, Antipas is going to be the, the primary one we're going to see um, as we as we go through the life of Christ. Any questions about any of those before we move on to uh, some of the other major figures? That's just kind of an information dump there, but I mean, a lot of it's probably review for most of you. Um, Pontius Pilate. Um, he became the prefect of Judea in AD 26. Um, he was um, at times willing to do things that were. Uh, he was willing to try to express his authority. At one point, he uh, brought in uh, images of of gods and brought them into the temple. Um, Basically, to just to, to assert his authority over the Jewish people and basically say, I can do what I want. Um, but then um, a number of the Jews, you know, came and protested, um, and eventually he, you know, threatened to execute them all. 
and they basically just you know bared their necks and said you know go ahead you know we're we're willing to die for this um, rather than the than suffer the the idols to be left in the temple and um, Pilate interestingly kind of backed off at that point he's like okay never mind I'll take those out so um, he, he was definitely willing to do things um, to uh, be, I guess, somewhat oppressive to the people, but he also was very cautious of doing too much, and uh, you know, and, and just basically stirring up rebellion. Um, and again, we see that when we think of the gospel story itself, and we think of uh, like when Jesus was brought to him, and he he capitulated to the crowds and, and gave them what they wanted, even though that wasn't really what he thought was best. And so he was, he was definitely a person who, um, like so many political leaders, was concerned about maintaining his position of power and was willing to do um, whatever was necessary to, to accomplish that, uh, even if it wasn't necessarily what he would choose to do on his own. Um, you also have the, uh, the chief priests. Uh, primarily you have... Um, the, the high priests, there's, there's actually some debate about what is meant by the chief priests. Uh, it's, a, it's a phrase you see repeatedly in the, in the Gospels. Um, but exactly the scope of what the chief priests were is, you know, there's, there's no historical reference that tells us exactly who the, the chief priests were. But presumably it included the high priest, um, possibly former high priests as well. There was a lot of you know, even though somebody wasn't a high priest anymore, they were still very connected and involved, um, and probably uh, just a number of the important uh, and influential priests um, that were um, that were around, even if they were never high priests, were probably included in the chief priests. But they were certainly people who were were in a position of authority, uh, people who uh, were able to exercise. Uh, some rule over the the land of, of Judea. Uh, in particular, um, Annas uh, was uh, was high priest uh, from 6 A.D. until 15, um, and the, the high priest during this period of time was appointed uh, by the Roman prefect. Um, it was no longer as you had had in the Old Testament where. Uh, you know, it's very specifically of, of the you know the line of Aaron, and um, eventually it was the line of Zadok. That was the official uh, priesthood. Um, you know, it, at this point, it was it was a position that was uh, under the authority of the governor of Rome, and that way he could exercise more control over the people because he could put who he wanted. Uh, in that position. And so Annas uh, was the high priest for a number of years there. Um, and then after uh, after his time was over, between uh, AD 16 and 68, so a very long period, going well past the time of the Gospels, uh, the high priesthood was held by five of Annas' sons, one of his grandsons, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And so Annas was a very influential person um, while he was the high priest and even after he was the high priest. Um, in fact, I mean, you, you see that in the Gospels um, that, like, Annas is still very much involved even though Caiaphas is technically the high priest. Um, 
So, and then Caiaphas, he was high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. So there we see, you know, during specifically the time that we're going to be talking about with the life of Christ and including uh, when... uh, when Jesus was put on trial, and Caiaphas specifically was one of the one of the people there to condemn him. Now, there are various other groups we see uh, that pop up um, in the Gospels. Uh, we have the Pharisees, uh, definitely one of the groups that you see mentioned over and over again. I'm sure many of us have a. Probably a you know a pretty clear idea of what the Pharisees were like. I think sometimes we can um, we can have some misunderstandings just because of the nature of the of the confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees actually were the group that had the most in common with Jesus of the groups that he interacted with. Um, they were very concerned about holiness. Uh, they supported the authority of the Bible. Um, they also had a notion of oral tradition, um, somewhat similar to what we see with the, the Roman Catholic Church of our day, where they had built up this uh, oral tradition that they, that they claimed came down from Moses, um, and they put it on the same level as Scripture, basically. Um, and so they had a whole bunch of things that, uh, in order for you to live a holy life pleasing to God, you had to follow all these rules. And um, you know, and they just they claimed the authority of their tradition for that, and that's often where uh, Jesus and the Pharisees uh, came into conflict, and in that he didn't follow the tradition of the elders, um, and they just couldn't understand why that was. Um, but uh, and they also they believed in the resurrection. They were, um, you know. I mean, in our day, they would, in a sense, they would be like, you know, the the conservative Christians. Um, in a sense, they were they were very um, very concerned with living righteous and holy lives, and very theologically correct in a lot of ways. Uh, but there was also a great deal of hypocrisy amongst uh, the Pharisees. Um, Jesus, in condemning them in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Uh, You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And so there we see this tendency within Phariseeism um, to focus all on the externals, uh, to basically want to look holy. They, uh, I mean, that's the idea of the term hypocrite. Uh, you know, in in the Greek language, that that comes from the idea of being an actor. You know, it isn't necessarily a bad thing, but in the in the context that it's used here. Um, the idea is that these were people who were acting at being holy. Uh, quite often, they weren't concerned about the condition of their heart, uh, about truly obeying God's law, but simply putting on a show uh, of obeying God's law. And so you see here Jesus condemning them because it's like there is like, oh, yes, we are we are so zealous for the law of God. We're supposed to tithe everything that we get. So, uh, you know, we just you know we're not just worried about our major income any little thing we get any 
garden herbs we grow, we're going to make sure that we get 10% of that and give it to God. Uh, but then they were neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. Um, it was all about the externals for many of these people. Um, and, of course, that is um, that's very much... Uh, one of the areas where Jesus came into conflict with them. But it is important to understand as we look at the scriptures that the Pharisees were viewed by the people at large as being the holiest of people. Um, it's it's interesting, um, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 17 through 20, I think this is a this is a passage that a lot of times can really be misunderstood because we're so used to thinking of the Pharisees as being opposed to Jesus and being, you know, just legalists and, and just sinful people that, that bring Jesus' condemnation, uh, that we don't really understand how they were viewed as being the most righteous people of the day. Um, and so in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, who relaxes, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so there, Jesus is extolling the virtue of the law of God and just putting it to the highest level and speaking of righteousness. Um, and he concludes by saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees uh, and the scribes, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, and again, I think a lot of the time we look at that and we say, oh, well, I mean, all you got to do is be better than the Pharisees. I mean, weren't they just a bunch of hypocrites? I mean, that, surely that's not that hard. But that's not the way that the people of that day would have viewed that. It's like, who's obeying the law? You look around. Who is being faithful and obeying the law of God in our day? Well, the Pharisees, they're the ones that really seem to be doing that the most. They're the ones that are just really, uh, at least out, from an outward perspective, are really trying to obey the law. Um, and, you know, Jesus says, you got you to do even better than that. Even better than what the Pharisees are doing. Um, and if anybody, I think, understood him in the context of that day... They would have looked at that and said, "How? How in the world could we do that? How, are we got to do better than the Pharisees? That's just, that's impossible." Which I think is actually the correct answer. It, it is impossible um, if you are looking to your own righteousness um, and you're saying, "Well, I, to enter heaven, my righteousness has to be that good." Um, you're never going to make it looking at your own righteousness. That's you know that should drive you to I need another righteousness. I need a righteousness that actually does uh, fulfill all the commandments of God that does exceed that of the Pharisees. And that is only the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. So, 
again, I, I think I think if if we're going to understand what we see with the interaction with the the Pharisees, we need to make sure that we're not thinking of them as just these these wicked people, um, but that we understand that in that in the the day of Jesus, they were viewed as the most holy people. Um, I mean, when we just you know try to make parallels with our society today, I mean, they really were like. Um, you know, conservative Christians in a lot of respects. And unfortunately, I mean, I think that in conservative Christian circles, there can be a lot of legalism. There can be a lot of external righteousness for show, uh, even though the heart is not changed. Um, and so it's very easy to, to make parallels there um, to try to give us an idea of, you know, of what, how the Pharisees would have been viewed. They wouldn't have been viewed as, you know, people who were opposed to uh, to the Word of God. They would have been people who were really like trying to follow it, as far as people could tell. I, I was going to say it's it's sort of unfair because it's like, you know, the Bible tells us what they're doing, and then Jesus like pulls the curtain back and mm-hmm. says. Now let's look at the motive of their heart and mm-hmm. see what's really going on here. Right. I mean, that would be like no different than if he did the same with us. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, we, we think we look so good, but, you know, whenever the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and pulls that curtain back and we see our hearts, we go, ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it would be the same thing. Yes. You know, if we weren't so, yeah, we really need to be very careful. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But it, it just, to me, it seems like, it's just we just have such a tendency to just think of oh well the Pharisees they were just they were the enemies of Jesus they they were bad people but it's like yeah. they yeah they would have been they would have looked a lot like us um, now you also have the scribes mentioned um, the the scribes were basically professional teachers um, there was a lot of overlap with the the Pharisees. Um, you know, there there would be some scribes that weren't Pharisees, and there would be some Pharisees that weren't scribes. But there was a great deal of overlap between the fri- the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, but you know, they would have been, in a lot of ways, very similar people. They would have been uh, very concerned about the the law of God and teaching that to other people. You also see the Sadducees. Um, the Sadducees are kind of the other major uh, party that we see uh, come up in the Gospels. Uh, now the Sadducees, they were they were they tended to be very wealthy. They were kind of ruling class people. Um, they, uh, as far as like their perspectives, um, they're they're very well known for denying the resurrection um, and saying basically that um, all the rewards that we have for following God come in this life. Um, there's a, a famous incident where they confront Jesus. Uh, and they're trying to basically to trap him. Uh, and Matthew chapter 22, verses uh, 23 and following, says the same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, uh, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? Uh, For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. 
For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at this teaching. And so there, um, something, again, another passage that a lot of times I think people uh, don't understand. Um, but basically what what's happening here is the Sadducees, they have an argument that they think is just unanswerable because they don't believe in the resurrection. And basically what they want to do is they want to show how ridiculous it is to believe in the resurrection. And so they propose this story where, you know, this woman gets married to seven different guys and, and they're basically like, look, if, if there's a resurrection, we're going to have a problem because it's like she's married to seven different guys. Um, you know, and, you know, of course, Jesus answers, you know, that it's like that it's things are going to be different in the resurrection. Um, but they think they've got this, you know, this thing that just shows the ridiculousness of resurrection. And then he turns it around and shows them that the scripture does teach uh, that it's not it's not all over after we die. Uh, life continues um, and God still has his people who of old died, and they are still his, he is still their God. Um, but the the Sadducees, again, they, they were very focused on getting all the rewards they could in this life, because as far as they were concerned, that was it. Uh, so they thought their faithfulness to God was, was what was giving them their positions of power and their wealth, and they weren't looking for any treasures in heaven, as it were. They were looking for all of their treasures here on earth. Um, and the, 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 the Sadducees and the Pharisees were, were often, you know, at odds with each other. They, they did not agree with each other. Um, they, you know, if you, if, you, if you wanted, I mean, it's not an exact parallel, but if you wanted to try to to bring it into our day and look at it from the perspective of different Christian groups. Um, it is kind of like the conservatives are the Pharisees and the liberals are the Sadducees. You know, the, the, the ones who are, you know, the liberals, you know, are often denying the supernatural and are really just focused on, you know, living according to the teaching of Jesus in this life. Uh, but, you know, wanting to deny the resurrection and the, uh, and the virgin birth and all those things, you know, where you've got the conservatives that are, you know, they're very concerned about maintaining these um, these theological truths. Um, again, you know, not to not to say that the Pharisees had it all right because they were they were just shot through with legalism and just putting on a show of holiness. Uh, but if you want to try to figure out like how to you know how to how to view these things and like just get a get a feel for the way that people in general view these things. Uh, the the Sadducees were not very popular with people. Uh, they were you know I mean they were obviously very powerful and they were popular amongst themselves, but the common people were not really fans of the of the Sadducees. But they did tend to look very highly at the Pharisees. So. Just There's, some things, yeah. Um, I'd say I think it's also important to remember that you know sort of these movements had roots in the Old Testament. You know when the Jews came back after the exile, 
you know, some recognized that they had not given real attention to God's word. Mm-hmm. And so there was sort of a re-emphasis that we need to focus on God's word and be very careful mm-hmm. and exalt that. And so that's where a lot of these movements came from. Mm-hmm. And so there was a sense of a very seriousness mm-hmm. about God's word and obeying that. But unfortunately, like you said, our hearts mm-hmm. can corrupt that and Absolutely. sort of direct us towards legalism, uh-huh. you yeah. know, in that. But it, it was really a very noble you know, yes. thought and, and movement in many yeah. ways to yeah. see these different groups come out of that. So yeah, yeah, that is true. It's, I mean, I guess that is kind of the the burden of what I'm trying to say, especially with respect to the Pharisees, is they is you know they do tend to get a bad rap, but like we really need to view them as, you know, that at least outwardly what they were what they were proposing to do was a very good thing, yeah. but it was just as you said earlier, you know, you. You peel back the curtain and you look at somebody's heart, and it wasn't good. Um, and you know we're going to see a lot of how, um, as Jesus is dealing with people who have lived lives of sin, um, and he's willing to interact with them. You know, they're, you know, it's not just so that they just hated, you know, tax collectors and uh, prostitutes just because they were mean people. You know, it was for them. It was a concern for holiness. It's like well, we want to obey God's law. These people are not obeying God's law. We don't want to associate with them. We don't want to. We're, we're concerned with holiness. How can we be holy if we're associating with these people who are just flaunting the law of God? Um, and so again, there was there was like some noble ideas behind um, some of the things that they were doing. But you know, again, as we see, like you know. Jesus knows what's going on in the heart, and um, and Jesus uh, was approaching people who were just weighed down in sin, giving them hope, um, and not just shunning them. So, yeah, very good, very good point. Um, another thing that we see in the uh, in the New Testament is we see the Sanhedrin. Um, that's basically just the uh, the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation, um, and um, it, it was made up of 70 elders uh, in addition to the high priest. The high priest was the president of the Sanhedrin. Um, and within the Sanhedrin, um, you had Sadducees and you had Pharisees. And the Sadducees were the majority party. They were, they were again, they were kind of the ruling people of the day. Uh, but you did have, you know, a minority of Pharisees as a part of the of the uh, the Sanhedrin, and you know, and so and you know, sometimes their differences of opinion will you know crop up in what we see going on with the, the Sanhedrin um, in the Bible. But that, but anyway, that was the basically the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation. They were answerable to the Roman governor, so they couldn't just do whatever they wanted. Um, as you know, if you remember that when it comes to them trying Jesus and then wanting to execute him. You know, they were able to come to the conclusion he's guilty, but they couldn't just execute him. They had to go to Pontius Pilate and say, hey, we've tried him. We found him guilty. We want to execute him. Will you let us execute him? Because that's um, they, you know, that's what they had to do. Actually, they had to have the Romans do it. Um, they couldn't they just couldn't do it themselves. Um, so they were under Roman authority in that sense. Um, but. Uh, but they, you know, they had a lot of leeway to to run things. Let's see. We also have the Herodians. Um, 
This is more of a minor group. Um, it's basically just uh, the party that supported the the rule of the Herods. You know, as we saw, there's all these different uh, Herods that are that are ruling in different areas, and so the Herodians were that was that was their concern was to to keep the rule of the Herods. Um, and you know, occasionally you saw them working with other people that uh, they might not normally, um, you know, get along with. Uh, interestingly, Mark three six, uh, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And so they, they had just seen Jesus uh, heal on the Sabbath, if I remember correctly. Um, and so the Pharisees, they're so upset about this that, like, they're plotting with the Herodians, who they wouldn't necessarily have gotten along with very well, because uh, they want to they want to get rid of Jesus. Um, but so the Herodians do pop up, but they're mainly just a political movement. Um, you also have the, the Zealots. Um, now, this one is somewhat anachronistic because there technically wasn't like a party of the zealots um, until uh, the 60s. Um, so a lot of you know that like in 70 AD, the, uh, basically Jerusalem was destroyed because I think I think starting in 68, uh, many of the Jews rebelled against Rome. Um, and, you know, that basically led to the Romans coming through and just destroying a whole bunch of things and crucifying a whole bunch of people. Um, and so you had the party of the zealots during that period who were people who were very zealous for uh, Israel's independence um, and, you know, and were willing to basically go to war to try to, to throw off the Roman rule. Um, so during... The, the time of Jesus, there wasn't like an official party of the zealots, but it was definitely a sentiment that existed. Um, there were many people, um, I mean, in fact, I mean, just even during Jesus's childhood, there were there were people who attempted to, to basically do that, who attempted to get a group of people together and fight off the Romans. Um, of course, none of them were ever successful. Um, but there was still just a, a large degree of anti-Roman sentiment that existed uh, amongst the people uh, of Jesus' day. Um, you think uh, in particular of the, of the question that comes to Jesus is like, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, that was, that was a hot-button issue because there would, be, there would be those who were of this persuasion of, you know, kind of the, the persuasion of a zealot, who would say no? It's it's never right to give tribute to some foreign power. Um, we you know we're God's people, and we shouldn't be giving money to some foreign power that's ruling over us. Um, so it, it, there was a lot of people who really wanted to get rid of the Romans. Um, you constantly see people who are viewing Jesus as a potential way to do that. Uh, they, at one point, want to make him king by force. Uh, they, they have this idea that it's like, well, if you, are the, if you are the Christ that was promised, then maybe this is the time that we're going we're gonna to kick the Romans out. Um, so definitely a sentiment that, that exists very much in... As we go through the life of Christ, we're going to see it crop up with people who are just really wanting to find some way to get rid of the Romans. 
Um, you also have the Samaritans. Um, this is not really a, a party. It's just a, another group of people. Um, if you again, if you if you still have your map there, uh, Samaria is in between uh, Judah and Galilee. Um, now the Samaritans were uh, largely half breeds, I guess you would say. Uh, the you know there had been a time when uh, the the northern nation of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians had taken away many of the people uh, from Israel and then had brought in other people from other countries um, and settled them there. And so the people of Israel that remained wound up interbreeding with the people who had been brought in from other nations. And so after the exile, the the people of, of Judah... Um, they basically is like you guys aren't really part of us. You're, you know, you're not really uh, a part of God's people, and so they were very, uh, they were viewed very negatively. Um, and we see that that uh, idea pop up numerous times as we look at the Gospels as well. We see that if people were going between Judah and Galilee, that they wouldn't go through Samaria most of the time. They would actually cross over the Jordan, you know, and then make the north-south trek there and then cross back over the Jordan um, just because they didn't want to go through Samaria. Uh, Of course, you know, there's an instance there where Jesus actually does go through Samaria, and it makes for some interesting stuff. Um, There's the the parable of the Good Samaritan that we're all familiar with, and, you know, the import of that is, you know, you have people of Israel who are unwilling to help this person who's been uh, set upon by robbers uh, but it's it's a Samaritan that's actually willing to you know to help this person and so Jesus is using that because it's the Samaritans were just not viewed positively uh, by the people of Israel um, so there's you know again just another sentiment that we see um, running through the uh, the uh, the, the pages of the New Testament, um, something that like we should understand as we're as we're looking at these various accounts that the Samaritans were not viewed favorably. Um, another group that uh, comes up in these discussions that's actually never mentioned in the Bible um, is the Essenes. Um, the Essenes were basically an ascetic group that were. Um, Kind of like the Pharisees, but taken to an even further extreme. Uh, they were um, they were very concerned with holiness and following God's law, uh, but they were they basically rejected uh, the the high priest um, and said, "Well, it, you know, the high priest has to be from the line of Zadok, um, unless you have that." then it's not really legitimate. And so they basically separated themselves from society um, and uh, just didn't interact with people. And so um, while occasionally you can see kind of things that crop up that kind of look like the ideas of the Essenes in the New Testament, they're never actually directly referenced. But they are, we know, a group of people that existed uh, during this time. Um, probably most famously, uh, if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, that came from the Qumran caves, 
and the Qumran area is where many of the Essenes were based, and they were basically living out in the wilderness in isolation in this community, um, very, very sort of like monasticism in a sense, where they lived off by themselves. Um, anyway, that's a that's another another group of people that existed at the time, and again, you can kind of see echoes of some of their sentiments as you look through the. The, uh, the gospel accounts um, but again they're not directly referenced any any questions or thoughts I know that's kind of big information dump about all sorts of stuff but hopefully that'll like maybe build a bit of a framework for what we what we see as we go through the, the pages of, of the gospels any any questions on that okay well in conclusion, um, Jesus interacted with these uh, groups in, in different ways, and so it's, it's it's important to understand their perspectives in order to understand how it is that Jesus interacts with him, with them, you know, and what's what's going on there. So uh, again, I think I think it's good just as a good background information. Um, and it, it's noteworthy that many of these groups saw themselves as serving God, uh, but they were at odds with one another, and oftentimes they were at odds with Jesus. Um, and we find ourselves in a similar situation. Um, there are many people in our day who, who claim that they are serving God, who believe that they're serving God. Uh, but oftentimes we find that there's all sorts of tension between these different groups uh, for all sorts of reasons. So I think it's important that um, that we we consider as we as we go through uh, all these things that we should consider Jesus's criticisms of these people and consider if any of these criticisms might apply to us. Um, just just a, an opportunity for a little bit of self-examination. Um, it's it's really important that we don't just say that we are following Jesus, that we're serving God, um, but that we really do our best to align ourselves with what Jesus actually taught and what what God would have us to do. Um, and so it's just it, it's. It's very easy for us to just make the assumptions like, oh, well, you know, yeah, we're, we're following God. This is, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Um, but we always should, always should be questioning um, if we really are in harmony with what God's word says. Um, that's why it's important to just keep going back to the Bible, studying the Bible, and coming to a, a deeper and deeper understanding of these things. Any final thoughts or questions before we close? All right. Oh, wait, yes? Um, on the map, there's this area called Decapolis. What is that? The Decapolis? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is actually a region. Um, the Decapolis actually means ten cities. And so there were ten major cities in this area. I'm not entirely sure who ruled them or if they were just individually ruled. And I mean, I'm sure they were under the Roman Empire. Um but uh, but they weren't ruled by any of the Herods. You do see sometimes in the Bible people uh, going to the Decapolis. I don't remember if it pops up in the Gospels. I know it does in the Book of Acts. 
Um, but it's it's a region not ruled by any of the Herods, but there are ten principal cities, and so that's how it gets the name Decapolis. So, but that's a good question. Anything else? Okay, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, again, we thank you uh, that you um, orchestrate all of history, uh, and God, just the um, the maze of of different situations and different groups of people that we see uh, that that appear during the life of Christ, and how you ordained all of that, and you uh, created the entire uh, political and ideological situation that um, that Jesus. Uh, found himself in as he uh, sought to convey your truth to people and, uh, and just to accomplish the mission that you sent him to to uh, to do. Um, God, we just we thank you that you are sovereign. God, we uh, thank you that you give us your word and you give us an opportunity to serve you, to study your word, to do what you've called us to do. Uh, you've given us your law and you've called us to holiness. And uh, God, I just pray that we would truly be people that uh, from the heart seek to do your word. And God, that we would not be led astray by um, just uh, the the desire to present an outward show. Um, Lord, that we would not be led astray by various movements of people who claim to be uh, doing your will, but who have other intentions. God, I just pray that we would be a a truly um, dedicated people to what your word actually says, that you would grant us understanding, uh, that our knowledge of who you are, what you would have us do, uh, just is growing um, every day. And that we are able to examine ourselves and, God, just to be a people that are pleasing to you. And, God, we know that you are building your church and that you are guiding us. Uh, And, God, I just pray that you would continue to do that. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.